Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Historians of Henry VIII's court, as I know from personal experience, would be absolutely lost without the colourful, gossipy, sometimes erroneous, but crucial insights of one man in particular. This man was a visitor to England. He worked for Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, and he wrote his vast correspondence largely in French. Known as the Imperial or the Spanish Ambassador, he was Eustace Chapuis, who spent 16 years at the Tudor court from 1529 to 1545. It is Chapuis who tells us that Anne Boleyn miscarried what seemed to be a male child when she was three and a half months pregnant on the day of Catherine of Aragon's internment and that Henry VIII showed great distress. It is Chapuis who reports Henry giving presents to Jane Seymour. It is Chapuis who informs us that Anne Boleyn's brother, Lord Rochford, told the assembled crowd in the Great Hall at the Tower of London that the king was not able to copulate with women and he had neither vigour nor potency. We would not know these things without Chapuis' letters. And yet, Chapuis' reports were based on hearsay, rumours, informants and gossip, especially as he himself did not speak English when he arrived at Henry VIII's court in 1529. Sometimes this seems to undermine the trustworthiness of his intelligence. The idea that Anne Boleyn had bewitched Henry VIII into marriage comes from an unnamed couple telling Chapuis that they had been informed by one of the principal persons at court that the king had said this to someone in great confidence, meaning that there are five degrees of separation between Chapuis and that infamous line. So how reliable is Chapuis as a source? What sort of person was he as a man? What does he have to tell us about the Tudor court? Introducing us to Eustace Chapuis is Dr. Lauren McKay. She has joined us on this podcast before to talk about the Boleyn family. A fellow of the Royal Historical Society, Dr. McKay is the author of Among the Wolves at Court, The Untold Story of Thomas and George Boleyn, and The Wolf Hall Companion. But her first book was a biography of Chapuis. It was called Inside the Tudor Court, Henry VIII and His Wives Through the Eyes of the Spanish Ambassador. Dr. McKay, Lauren, it is wonderful to talk to you about someone that you believe is one of the key reasons why we find the people of the Tudor court so vivid 500 years later, Eustace Chapuis. Now, he is a man who is so important to our understanding of the Tudor court, but I suppose we don't know that much about him. Tell us what we do know. Oh gosh, where to start? As you say, he's such an important source of the period. I always like to say Chapuis gives the Tudors their colour and their texture. He manages to really bring them to life. 
What we do know about Chapuis, and I think this is maybe what sets him apart a little bit, is he does love to write about himself as well. And he does have a lot of correspondence with family members. So we can piece together a lot of his life. We know where he was born. He was born in a lovely little town called Ancy, which is now part of France, which he would have absolutely hated knowing. But at the time, it was part of the independent duchy of Savoy. And he was one of six children. He, I think, was the second eldest of three brothers and three sisters. And his parents were not necessarily well-to-do, but they were well-respected in the town. His father, Louis, worked in the municipality, and his mother's name was uh, Guigon. And when he was about 15, Chapuis' father died. You get a sense from the letters later on that Chapuis takes over as a bit of the head of the family. He's devoted to his mother. He's devoted to his sisters throughout his life. He's devoted to his nieces and nephews. So he's very much a family man. And Chapuis is more than just an ambassador. He has a law degree. He trains as a priest. So he has this trifecta going on. So when he does join the court of Charles V, and he becomes quite indispensable there in the imperial court. He is a man who has traveled on the continent. He's educated in Italy. And fast forwarding to 1529, when he is then sent to the Tudor court, he's not just there as an ambassador. He's there as Catherine of Aragon's legal defense. He is there as her companion and her confidant. So I think that's really where Chapuis' story sort of takes off. But as I said, there's a lot we can piece together about Chapuis, the man as well, because his correspondence isn't just diplomatic. It's not just official and to Charles V. It's to friends of his and it's to his family. And there's really so much more to know about Chapuis, the man, beyond the role of ambassador. People might be surprised to learn that his correspondence with the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V was not in Spanish. Though he occasionally wrote in Latin, he's largely writing in French, obviously sometimes in ciphered French. Why was that? What does this tell us about his education? And why did Charles V choose a Savoyard as his ambassador? As you say, it's a really common misconception that, yes, Eustace Chapuis was Spanish. It's not even a Spanish name. And yet you'll see in a lot of the fictional interpretations, he's always Spanish. I think in the latest one, the Stars adaptation, he looks like some sort of heavy metal rocker with mascara. And it's very peculiar. But that is because Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, was also Charles I of Spain. Now, we would normally actually say that he was the imperial ambassador, but he's better known as the Spanish ambassador. How he came to Charles V's attention, we know that he had a few contacts who introduced him to Charles V's court, and we know that his education as a lawyer made him indispensable to Charles V, who at that time was looking for some new faces in the diplomatic lineup because of what was going on in England, of course, Charles V being Catherine of Aragon's nephew. Chapuis didn't necessarily have an ambassadorial background, but he ticked a lot of boxes that I think Charles V was looking for. And obviously he must have impressed Charles as well. I don't think Charles is an easy person to impress, but I think that Chapuis did impress him. I think Chapuis must have been charismatic and obviously possessed these kinds of qualities that he was looking for. And as you say, no, he didn't write in Spanish, or at least not often. He did actually know how to write Spanish, but he 
did obviously write in French, French not only being the language of diplomacy, but the language which Charles V spoke as well. I think Charles V once famously declared that he spoke Spanish to God and Italian to women, French to men and German to his horse. So French was absolutely the language that you'll see the majority of Chapuis' dispatches written in. But also he did every now and then write in Spanish, depending on who he was actually writing to. You mentioned his charisma, and Garrett Mattingly, a fine historian, described Chapuis as a man of hard-headed realism, with a cynical disillusionment, impatient with fools and hypocrites, having a sympathy with the unorthodox and the victims of justice and a liking for desperate causes, <laughs> as you quote in your book. Do you think that's a fair description? What do you make of Chapuis' character? Garrett Mattingly did his PhD on Chapuis, and I think he's quite on the mark when it comes to his description of Chapuis. What I find so interesting about him is his emotion how invested he becomes in situations that other ambassadors wouldn't necessarily get bogged down in. And of course, Catherine of Aragon's cause and the great matter is one of them. But what I also find interesting about Chapuis is how much you can discern about his character on the pages. And you can't get to know ambassadors usually that particular way. But what is interesting about Chapuis is how he fashions himself. He does have an impatience for fools, absolutely. But he also wants to be seen as besting people around him, in particular Henry VIII. He doesn't have much patience for Henry VIII. I'm not calling Henry VIII the fool, but I'm simply saying Chapuis certainly didn't have high opinions of him. But certainly, I think that Mattingly was quite bang on with that interpretation. Certainly the emotion in Chapuis and the ways he can't let things go, he does hold grudges, but he's definitely one of the most interesting of the ambassadorial team at the English court. He really is in the thick of it. It's interesting to think about what his first impressions of the court must have been and what they made of him. What information do we have about that first moment of arrival in 1529, what he saw and what was reported of this new imperial ambassador? He arrives in September of 1529. It's kind of chaos and... His first, I think, meeting with Henry. What I will say about Chapuis is he has an open mind. I don't think he knew what to expect of Henry. And Henry is boisterous and he coaxes Chapuis into almost trusting him. And Chapuis is on guard, but he wants to believe the best of Henry, I think, at this juncture. He's not formed yet an opinion of Anne Boleyn either. He is quite rational in these first few days in England. He's not yet emotionally invested in Catherine's cause. He's there as a lawyer. He surveys and he will decide in due course. But certainly his first audience with Catherine on the same day. So he meets basically like the legal team. He's meeting both sides of the dispute, of the mediation. And I think he's immediately drawn to Catherine of Aragon. I think he forms a very quick opinion of her as a woman of strength. He's very drawn to her. And so I think almost at that juncture, his probably determination to be neutral goes out the window. Her pain, her plight resonates with him very quickly. Now, what they think of him... Sorry, that's another issue. I think that they are all very wary. They had just been dealing with Inigo de Mendoza, the previous imperial ambassador. They think they were probably preparing someone similar, someone possibly they could run rings around, someone who could get very heated, someone who wasn't going to be level-headed. And I think Chapuis probably surprised them. Now, as you've said, he could speak Spanish. He would have been able to speak to Catherine 
But he didn't speak English when he arrived, did he? What did that mean for his ability to report accurately? How did he gather his information? And how quickly did he learn the language? Now, that's something that I think is hotly disputed. I think a lot of people want to believe that after well over a decade of the English court, Chapuy never learnt English, couldn't speak it. And certainly, Chapuy is very careful to always tell people how bad his English is. Of course, if you're an ambassador, you're not going to talk about your strengths. You're going to really talk up your weaknesses, of course, because he wants people to drop their guard in his presence. But as you say, when he first gets there, no, he doesn't really have English. He might have a couple of phrases. Spanish, yes, he speaks to Catherine. But what Chapuy does very well is to form a household around him of different servants. He forges connections very quickly and very clever connections as well. So he makes friends with a lot of the Lebeckian merchants, various merchants down at the docks, and he is able to bring people into the household who can speak English, who might not necessarily be noticed. And I think he does this very well. Now, we can't prove anything, but certainly the accuracy of his information and the speed with which he's able to report of things that are happening that can be verified suggests that he has his ear to the ground and he has other people with their ear to the ground. And certainly I would have imagined that very quickly he'd be working hard to learn English, to understand what's being spoken around him. I think they probably would have made that one of his first agendas, even if he didn't tell anybody about it. But as I said, he always knew what was being said around him. But he certainly did establish for himself this network of spies, didn't he? Yes. And you say that he had a pair of eyes in Anne Boleyn's own chambers, which of course was crucial from 1529 onwards. Do we know who that was or what sort of things were reported to him? That's quite tough. What we don't necessarily know is, was it one of her ladies? Was it someone in the bedchamber? Was it someone on the periphery? Was it someone serving in the household? We don't know. We don't even know if it was one of her or if it was more. We do know is that he seemed very up to date with things going on in Anne's chambers. He seemed to know when there was tension in the royal couple. He seemed to know when certain matters were being discussed. So where he actually developed these particular networks, we're not sure. All we really have to go on is the end results, because we know he has the information. We know he's very well informed. But certainly, I think there might have been women who would have been loyal to Catherine of Aragon, and he used that to forge the connection and then have people in Anne's chamber. Whether or not Anne even suspected it or knew it, it's never really clear, because certainly she was still unguarded enough so that this kind of sensitive information was passed out to him. Do you have any sense whether this use of proxies damaged the quality of his intelligence? Or in other words, if he didn't limit his reports to those things he himself had witnessed, does that raise questions for you about how reliable his dispatches were? The interesting thing about Chapuis' dispatches is not how he presented them, but how we have interpreted them. Chapuis is very careful in how he presents the information that he has. And he has various categories of information. The first category is official information that has been brought to him via official channels. So the official report that he's going to give. The second category is decent information, maybe obtained through a slightly unofficial channel, but still very good. 
But the third category is this. It's every piece of information that comes by him, that comes across his desk. It's the rumors. It's the tidbits of gossip. It's someone with their ear to the ground has heard something in the corridor. It's everything that he can glean. Now, what is important to notice, Shapui is absolutely upfront about this. If it's official information, he will say. If it is unofficial information, he will say, I've heard a rumor. I cannot verify it. I'm going to try, but I'm not going to set much store by it. He will make his own judgments. The problem arises is when historians take that rumor and twist it as if it's become it was official information or as though he is actually saying this happened. If you go back to the dispatches, he's so careful. He's a lawyer. He's not going to get caught out here. He's going to make sure that everything is prefaced. If it's a rumor, he makes that very clear. And quite often, he'll, in the next dispatch, he'll come back to that and say, I couldn't verify it. So he is definitely careful. I think the problem with Shapui, there's such an emotional reaction to him that I think a lot of people, especially if they are fans of Anne Boleyn, they don't necessarily put much store in his veracity as a source. And that's unfortunate because you could not write a book without Shapui as a source. That's certainly true. And so interesting. So the fact is that he tells us, I know this because somebody said it to somebody else who then reported it to me and the first person had overheard Henry VIII saying it or whatever he gives us that chain of Chinese whispers by which he knows something yes but we take it as absolute guaranteed fact absolutely it's often taken out of context it becomes very frustrating because you know that Chapuy is being very careful and sometimes the rumors are quite fanciful and I think sometimes he wants to believe it, but if it doesn't come to pass, then he can't verify it. He's not going to report it as a fact. His descriptions are rich and full of verbatim detail, but what's interesting was the things that he doesn't record. You know that he doesn't care much for patentry, unlike the chronicler Edward Hall, who tells us everything. And he also doesn't give physical descriptions. You say he never tells us what Anne Boleyn looks like. What else does he miss? Yes, he doesn't describe women. I think he finds it too sensitive a subject. He doesn't describe physicalities. He doesn't necessarily describe personalities either. What he's really focusing on is tone. He will describe facial expressions perhaps, but tone and whether or not the person he's speaking to is saying something that he can trust or not. So I think he's always really trying to get to the truth of the matter and the core of the matter. Everything else is just confetti to him. It's not important. And he doesn't necessarily describe Henry VIII either. So it's the more trivial elements of court life that just don't interest him. And also he doesn't describe household issues. He doesn't describe the domestic issues going on. It's the politics. But he is very interested in the mercantile elements of the Tudor court as well because I suppose what interests him are the areas in which he actually navigates so everything else is just unimportant and it's a bit frustrating because I would love just one wonderful description of Anne Boleyn through his eyes that I think he would be very detailed and it's just beyond him. He does of course famously give us one wonderful description of Jane Seymour which is not terribly flattering but he doesn't do it all the time. I think he was just so shocked that she was so different. I felt he was compelled. I have to describe this woman. I just have to because it's it's so peculiar to him, perhaps. Mm. Now, you say that Chapuis became Catherine of Aragon's sounding board and life coach. Tell me more about their relationship. At first, it really was ambassador and queen and lawyer and client. But very quickly, he becomes 
attached to her, emotionally invested in her cause. But what's interesting about this is that it's with Chapuis that Catherine, I think, is at her most vulnerable. With Henry and with the rest of the court, she has her battle armor on at all times. She's always prepared for a fight and with good cause because she's always being attacked. But it's with Chapuis that she's vulnerable and discuss her own concerns and discuss her own fears as well. And so we see that towards the end of her life when it's with Chapuis that she has some of the most frank conversations I think of her entire life and when all of a sudden you see Catherine with that guard down where she says to Chapuis, am I responsible for the deaths of men like Thomas More and Bishop Fisher? Now, that is so at odds with the public persona of Catherine that obviously she's in the right and she's going to forge ahead and it doesn't matter who's going to be hurt, much the same way that Henry forged ahead. But also with Catherine, through Chapuis' dispatches in his relationship, we see him very much aware of her flaws as well. She's not perfect. She's not on a pedestal with Chapuis. He sees both sides of the issue, but he also sees in Catherine that absolute desire to be a martyr to her cause. And she is so determined to be a martyr that she will even take Princess Mary down with her to make that point to Henry. And it's Chapuis who sort of steps forward to try and protect Mary from her mother, in a sense. So he does build Catherine up. He is always trying to keep her calm and to help her in the situations, but he's also sometimes being very honest with her. And I think not everyone at that court was. And I think that was very important. He was always truthful with her about everything that was going on. And so that's why I call him her life coach as well, because he was able to see her vulnerability and break down those walls, which was a massive feat with someone like Catherine of Aragon. Did he get too involved in her case, though? I mean, thinking of the midnight visit to Henry, should he have advised Catherine to acquiesce? Did he do her a disservice in the end? That's an interesting question. Chapuis absolutely got too emotionally invested. I don't think he could help himself. She inspired so much loyalty in him. And yes, these chaotic moments in Chapuis' career, as you say, when he arrives at the palace at midnight, he is so distraught. Absolutely, he probably got too invested. But I just think that the circumstances were so grievous to him that he really couldn't sit by and watch this happen to someone he so admired. You mentioned earlier that he was operating in some way as having two roles. He's ambassador for Charles V to Henry VIII, and he's also in some ways her lawyer. But does that mean that his friendship with her kind of transgresses what he's supposed to do as ambassador? Thomas Boleyn, and I mean, he would, wouldn't he? But he accuses Chapuis of having two faces. Do you think he did? It's so hard because I am a great lover of Thomas Boleyn as well as Eustace Chapuis, and I absolutely see both sides of that particular story. Chapuis was at times playing with fire, absolutely, because he definitely did sometimes, yes, maybe have two faces, and he probably should have advised Catherine definitely at times, but I think the cause became so personal, it was almost as if it was his cause. And as you say, that's again getting too deeply involved in things. But certainly it put a distance between Chapuis and the other ambassadors. It didn't help his cause either. And as you say, you can't really be a lawyer if you're that emotionally invested in everything. And I think that's why eventually he dispenses with the whole legal counsel idea and he really just becomes the confidant and her ambassador. But that's also why perceptions of him change at the court, why people like Thomas Boleyn come out against him. In the end, despite having visited her a few days beforehand, he wasn't present at Catherine's bedside when she died. How did he react 
to hearing the news of her death? It probably was one of the most distressing times, not only in his career, but in his life. He had fought so hard to visit Catherine in those last weeks because he knew she was so ill. And Cromwell and Henry are dithering. I think he feels they're playing games. I think they're almost trying to delay it so that he'll miss her passing, perhaps. And finally, he gets the permission to go up and he stays with her over a couple of days. And that's where they have some of these wonderful conversations between the two of them, which he writes about. And he thinks that she is gaining some strength and he feels it's okay to leave. And it's as he is en route back to London that she actually passes. So he arrives in London to the news, which has overtaken him, that Catherine has died. And it's not just Catherine's death that I think breaks him in a sense. It's the reaction to her death. There is not a modicum of respect, of dignity in Henry's and Anne's reaction to her death. No matter which way you play it, Henry was openly rejoicing And I think this is a moment in Chapuis' career that we see him change. There is something in him that I think hardens. And I think his dispatches after that point are very different. He becomes quite wild in the next few days. He's accusing people of poisoning Catherine. He really does his language change. The tone of his letters change. He becomes almost vicious. And this is this pain. This is this anger. So it's this investment that he has had all these years in this woman. And I think he feels that he failed her. And he failed her not in just stopping this from happening of being exiled, but not being there by her side when she died. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how code breakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. 
Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. It's so fascinating that you can chart this change in him through his letters which of course is the only way you know him but that means that you must have spent so much time with his correspondence in order to be able to get a sense of what's normal for Chapuis what's his normal tone how does he normally write things what's aberrant how can we tell if he's angry or upset how did you get to that sort of state of emotional intimacy (laughs) with him at this great distance (laughs) that's right (laughs) Yes, my husband says I'm married to several men, and he's only one of them. And Chapuis was my first love. His letters are scattered, but the main archive is the Haushofenstadt Archive in Vienna. That's where all of the diplomatic correspondence is, because that was once Charles V's capital. But there I spent... I don't know, almost two months, I think, not just by myself, but also with other academics and archivists, really mapping the trajectory of the letters. In the cartons, they are a mess. I think every person, I don't want to blame Mattingly, I'm sure he wasn't the last to see them, but someone had them in quite disarray. They were all over the place in these different cartons and out of order, and it was shocking. But piecing them together, you can really get a sense of the tone when he first arrives. You feel this optimism pervading the letter. He's new and he's younger and this is an exciting post and he's sure it won't last too long and this will be very interesting and probably a good stepping stone for his career. And as the years progress, you can actually almost see in the writing style, in the way in which he actually describes things, there is at times anger, there is more frustration. In some of the letters, there are big ink blots And you can tell that he is probably swept across the page quickly. He will correct himself quite a lot in the later letters. He'll scribble out words. He'll try to correct himself as if the first thing he said was too harsh and he wants to say something else. And this goes on from 1529 right through till he leaves. But also I was able to compare that to the letters that he has written back home to his mother and to his niece in Alsea. I spent quite a lot of time in Alsea, in the archives there, and in the vault with his portraits, which never see the light of day. And the letters to his mother throughout his life are quite fascinating. He's so soft. Even when he's nagging her to eat well, even when he's nagging her to make good investments and not squander the money that he's sending home, and even when he's nagging his niece to make a good marriage, not to marry the first person that she's fallen in love with, there is such a softness to him that you don't see in the ambassadorial dispatches. It's basically just living and breathing the letters and the writing. He is one of the few people I think you can really sit down with and you could, it's almost as if you're having a conversation with him. You understand him and you understand his mental state almost at all times because it's there on the page. So you've been in Ancy, you've been in the archives in Brussels, in Vienna, 
This suggests that you're drawing on things in a range of different languages, and quite a lot of the time these letters are ciphered as well. You've given a bit of the answer to this question already, I think, but I still want to ask you, how essential do you think it is to get to see those manuscripts over the calendar versions on which you also draw? What else does one learn? What I learned is that you cannot always trust the interpretation of the letter, especially when it's interpreted by Brewer or Bergenroth or Gayangos because they are bringing their own bias to the interpretations. And this was something that struck me. And I remember having this conversation with George Bernard, of all people, once many years ago. Because I, I was actually going to blame George Bernard for having <laughs> messed up the letters when you said that. <laughs> Not just because no. he's such a good scholar and would have gone and used them rather than because he's messy. 100%. Absolutely. He might be messy, I'm not sure, but certainly I know he was there at some point. And I remember I said this was the moment for me where I was cross-referencing one particular letter, and I've forgotten the letter now, but in the letter Chapuis had written maîtresse, and I looked at one at the corresponding line, and it said concubine. And for me, that was such a moment of, wait a minute, sorry, Chapuis didn't write that. But then you have to also remember, as I said, the bias of the translators. Now, these men writing, they were not Anne Boleyn fans. They really did see, I think, Anne Boleyn as a homewrecker. And I think this was a sentiment that I think they also shared. And so they seemed to have no problem putting in concubine when Chapuis didn't say concubine. And it's fed into this myth about Chapuis. It really has damaged his reputation. There has been a systematic denigration of his character because of it. So absolutely, you have to go back to the originals because these translations are completely devoid of his feeling and sometimes completely devoid of his own writing as well. They're very simplified versions. Now, Chapuis, when he's writing in French, sometimes he's incomprehensible. 16 century French is complicated and convoluted and it can sometimes take him, as it does I think me sometimes speaking in English, two sentences to get to the point, to get to the crux of the matter and there are sometimes phrases that you just think, I have no idea what you're really trying to say I think at one point he said that Cromwell looked as displeased as dogs falling out of a window. I remember asking the archivist, is that a French phrase? Is that something that's popular? I have no idea really what he's really alluding to there, but certainly I'm not going to get that magic from the translations. Yes, there's another wonderful simile that he uses that really made me wince, <laughs> that you quote, that he talks about something like eels crying out before they are skinned. <laughs> he has a great sense of imagery, doesn't he? Really amazing. So what you're saying is the moralism of the 19th century affected their way of seeing Chapuis and their way of seeing Catherine and Anne Boleyn and therefore how everything is told. Absolutely. And I think that's across the board as well. You and I have spoken about Thomas Boleyn and the way that they perceived the Boleyns. Anne Boleyn was either the victim or she was the homewrecker. And she's very much, I think, in this particular instance to them, she was the homewrecker. It absolutely has tinged the tone of the letters because that's how they are viewing it. Even if Chapuis is not necessarily being as harsh in his original, they want that. And so that's the overall tone of the letter. Okay, so as a result of that, this assumption has been that Chapuis always called, and apologies to French speakers, Anne Boleyn la putain, or the concubine, Elizabeth the little bastard. He did sometimes use those more cutting names. How did he actually refer to these people? And when did he start using that sort of terminology? 
Yes, it is an absolute myth. And as you say, people say that it rolls off the tongue. He only ever called and this and then that, as you say. So from 1529 to 1533, he called Anne the lady. He called her a Lady Anne. He, he was pretty respectful. He had no reason not to be. He didn't necessarily agree with what was happening and he was defending Catherine. But as the embassy progresses, what I noticed was when he does flare up, let's say, and I think the first instance is in 1533, it's reactionary. As you say, he's an emotional character and when he does lash out, he's lashing out at something that Anne has said or she has done, or that Henry has done, and that has hurt Catherine, has affected Mary, and he lashes out. Yes, he will then quite randomly call Anne, as you say, La Poutin, or the concubine, but it's really a handful of letters, and it's always following something. Now, we do start to see it happen a bit more frequently after Catherine's death in 1536. As I said, there's a change in him, and it's reactionary. He's distraught, he's angry, he blames Anne, he blames Henry, and you see that shift in the language and the way he describes Anne Boleyn. He even calls her the English Messalina. Which I think actually is not necessarily about insulting her. Puy was a great lover of parables and mythology. He referred to himself as Nesta, of course, being one of the characters in Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey who always gave long-winded advice to people. And he could not help but draw the parallel between Messalina and Anne Boleyn and the Emperor Claudius and Henry VIII. It was too perfect to him. So it's not always about insulting Anne. Sometimes it's just a wonderful phrase that he thinks will sound great for posterity because that's something we always had an eye on. Much of our information about Anne Boleyn's fall comes from Chapuis. So we've got really good, solid facts that he introduces into our knowledge. And we've got a whole bunch of myths that he introduces into the narrative as well of those events in 1536. Can you distinguish a few of those for us? Oh, gosh. Problem is, everyone had a story in these weeks. And that's probably why it feels so complicated in Chapuis' dispatches. He is recording everything, everything that he is. Anne's reaction to being arrested. There were maybe a hundred men that she had slept with. She had threatened this and that. All the different myths, as you say, that have become quite a part of Anne Boleyn's narrative of her downfall. But Chapuis, even in those moments, he's still not necessarily believing everything, but he's recording everything. It's all happening so quickly that I think he is making sure he has everything on paper and then later he can go through and work out what really happened. Because this is something that goes on in Chapuis' mind for some time in the weeks leading up to Anne's execution and after her execution. What happened? And this is a question that he asks for quite a long time after her death because he can't quite believe not only that this actually was allowed to go through and this was some kind of legal process and that Henry allowed it to happen, but that the whole of England turned away and acted as if this was a completely normal situation. So yes, as you say, there were a lot of different myths but again, he does preface them, but they have become a part of this disinformation that Chapuis is responsible for. As I said, there was just so much chaos going on. I just feel like he had to report everything he heard. After the death of Catherine in particular, his position as ambassador must have been quite a lonely one. It seems to have had few friends, partly by definition in his role. Did he want to leave his posting? He was always asking Charles V if perhaps he might go home, certainly after 1536 and certainly after Catherine's death. The problem with Chapuis is he was too good at his job 
And Charles V never had any intention of sending him home. And that is the double-edged sword, isn't it, of being such a great ambassador and so indispensable. But as you say, the landscape of the Tudor court shifted over those years. So the men that he knew when he first arrived, men like Thomas More, who he was good friends with, men like Bishop Fisher, Catherine... They were gone by 1536, and so he must have felt quite alienated and certainly much disliked as well because he was, what, on the losing team, so to speak, and the Berlins were triumphant, and he had been seen as such a troublemaker, I think. It was difficult, but he gets a bit of a second win when the Berlins fall because he is good friends with a lot of the conservative factions at court, so he's able to ingratiate himself. It's the Catherine Support Group 2.0. He's got another chance, and he takes it. In these years, he builds up an unlikely friendship with Thomas Cromwell. And you say that both Rapuy and Cromwell were masters of dissimulation. But from the outside, they look to be completely different sort of men. How did they become friends? This is something I actually loved in Hilary Mantel's trilogy, the relationship between Cromwell and Chapuy, because we do have correspondence which describes it. It might have been the fact that they were neighbours to start with. And I think Chapuy and Cromwell, they were the sort of men who could get on when they lay aside their political differences. They're both sort of self-made men. They've both travelled on the continent. They've both lived in Italy. And I think... They're religiously probably opposed, and yet Chapuy was not this conservative Catholic that everyone always thinks of him. He was a humanist. Yes, he was Catholic, but he also recognised the corruption within the church. Where Chapuy and Cromwell differ is how to fix that. Chapuy wanted to fix it from the inside out and to cleanse it, and Cromwell just wanted to tear it all down. But I think there was a personal rapport between the two. Not necessarily similar in temperament, but certainly in interests. They both had interest in fine wine, in fine foods, in tapestries, in art from the Orient and tapestries from the Orient. And this was something that you see in both households. And obviously it was this connection. What's interesting is that they could be terrible friends to each other. We know that Cromwell had worked out Chapuy's cipher within a few months because the imperial cipher never changed. So no one had to do too much work. And we know that sometimes Cromwell runs rings around Chapuy, and yet such is their friendship that Chapuy can't help but forgive him. But as time goes on, they have these very frank conversations where Chapuy is asking him, tell me, how did you engineer Anne's downfall? Who engineered it? Was it you? Did the king give you the go-ahead? He wants to know, and I think these frank conversations are so fascinating because I don't think you see this Cromwell all that often. And I think the tragedy of that friendship is, of course, the sudden break when in 1539, when it seems as though war between the Holy Roman Empire and England is inevitable, the diplomatic personnel are always the first to be recalled and Chapuy leaves England. And he leaves under a cloud. He and Cromwell have quite a big fight and they are no longer speaking. By the time Chapuy returns to England in 1540. I think he arrives, I think, the day or the day after Cromwell is executed. And so you never see the conclusion to that friendship. And it's such a shame because it was this very long-lasting friendship and so full of intrigue and yet these joyous moments of just two men coming together and understanding each other in a world of politics that they could lay aside for one evening while they could talk about, I don't know, Italian art and culture and find some common ground. And that's a very rare thing in Tudor England. It must have been very hard 
that that friendship was never patched up before Cromwell's horrible dispatch. And the fact that he's gone during those years, of course, also means that we don't have observations of Anne of Cleves as queen, because, frankly, the other ambassadors aren't up to Chapuis' level of gossipy description. That's true. We have the French ambassador Charles de Mariac, but he's pretty subpar when it comes to these, as you say, descriptions of people. In fact, it's Mariac who says when Chapuis returns to court, Chapuis will find it hard now because he no longer has his Cromwell to protect him. So Mariac knows that Chapuis is going to have a tough embassy. But as you say, Chapuis arrives and by that point, Anne of Cleves has almost come and gone. I think, and that's why he has such a hard time ever wanting to leave the court when he wants to, is because his dispatches are so detailed. And even when he's not there, there's a replacement. Charles V always complains because he notices that absolute dip in the detail and in the length and the brevity of the dispatches. He notices these kinds of things. So it is a shame. The nice thing is, though, we do have descriptions of Anne of Cleves once she's managed to survive Henry's marriage. And it's interesting because Chapuis did know all of the queens. And so he had great admiration for Anne of Cleves. He knew she was a reformist, but he admired her dignity. And that's something that comes up a lot in his dispatches. He's amazed that she's handled it all so gracefully because he knows of another queen who didn't necessarily handle it quite so gracefully. His ideas of Anne of Cleves are perhaps a bit thinner than usual, but still we get a sense of the woman. One last question then. According also to Charles de Marillac... Chapuis, when he returned in 1540, was a broken man. Do you think this is true? Do you think that in the years that followed, he was as capable an ambassador as he had been before? Or is there a a lack there that explains why he's replaced by François van der Delft? I think Charles de Marillac would love for Chapuis to be a broken man because he seems to have despised Chapuis before even meeting him, just on principle. And in fact, the rivalry between Chapuis and Mariax, as I say, lit up the court. And you have all these interesting interactions. And then, of course, you have this devastating moment where Chapuis has accidentally left dispatches in a drawer in a desk in an apartment that then Mariax rents and he finds. And he throws about it for quite some time that he has Chapuis dispatches. I do, however, think that there is some truth to what Mariax says. But it's not necessarily because he is no longer good at his job, but he has gotten older and it has been a very long time in England and he has endured a lot. He suffers dreadfully from gout. And I think he's not necessarily that same young active ambassador that he once was. I think also he struggles with the politics after a while, but also he goes because he wants to retire. He's not replaced by choice. He's replaced because by that point he has to leave England. He is so ill and he is so tired and he wants to spend the remaining years that he can in Louvain and he wants to see his family who he hasn't seen for years on end. And he really gets to the point where he's begging. He's begging Charles to let him retire. And as I said, that's double-edged sort of being too good at your job. Van der Delft is such a subpar ambassador compared to Chapuis. The problem with Van der Delft is he believes everything he's told. And he makes the perfect ambassador for the English court because he will report exactly what they want him to report. But we see immediately the letters from Charles V complaining to van der Delft that his dispatches are not up to the mark that they should be. And of course, Charles V can't even let Chapuis go in retirement. He writes to Chapuis 
to basically ask him if he can instruct van der Delft to be a better ambassador. So even in retirement, he's not allowed to let loose. He still has to be a mentor to the next generation of imperial ambassadors. Well, this has been a fascinating insight into a man who absolutely provides for us the textual equivalent to Holbein's pictures of the Tudor court. It's through Holbein and Chapuis, and because of them, we have this technicolour vision of what was going on around Henry VIII. Do you have any plans to publish Chapuis' letters? I mean, I'm thinking, given that you've gone and looked at the manuscripts, you could do an edition of them. Oh my gosh, it would be such a large book. I think I would love to, simply because I think the world should see them. And I think being locked away in Vienna is a shame. There's so much to glean from them. I think if the Hauslofenstadt archives allowed me to, I would, absolutely. I don't know how to go about it, but I think it's time that perhaps we revisit these documents because, as you say, these ideas of Chapuis have been so entrenched And I think the only way we're going to break through that is to actually read Chapuis in his own words. And that's the best way we can get to the truth. Well, you've certainly taken us a long way there today. You take us even further in your book, Inside the Tudor Court, Henry VIII and his six wives through the eyes of the Spanish ambassador. And I'm sorry for proposing a massive research task for you at the end of this podcast. Thank you so much for your time. (laughs) You've given me food for thought, so thank you. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify, And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS 
for an exclusive discount.